Welcome to the Heal Your Hormones podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle. I'm a licensed naturopathic doctor specializing in hormones and fertility. And today's topic um, is really special to me because it's something that I struggle with, and that is thyroid health. So I had posted a poll on Instagram asking if you guys wanted to hear about thyroid health or hair loss first, and it was pretty much a dead tie. So I decided to start with thyroid health since thyroid health can impact hair loss, um, and then we will get to hair loss next week. So starting off, you know, what exactly is the thyroid? So thyroid is a butterfly-shaped gland in the neck, and it produces hormones that help to regulate growth, metabolism, and energy. So really important for essentially every system in our body because every cell uses thyroid hormones to some degree. When you go to your primary care doctor or your gynecologist for your annual exam, they often feel for your thyroid in your neck. And what they're feeling for is any sort of enlargement or swelling that may indicate inflammation in the thyroid. Now, thyroid dysfunction is fairly common. Roughly 12% of the U.S. population will develop some form of thyroid dysfunction in their lifetime, and it's estimated that about 60% of people with thyroid dysfunction are unaware they have it. So really important to know the signs to watch for and to be getting tested, especially if you are a woman. Women are five to eight times more likely to have thyroid problems than men. Now, when I was thinking about what I wanted to cover in this episode, you know, there are so many different directions that you can go with thyroid health. And for the sake of not having this episode be two hours long, I'm really going to focus on hypothyroidism, which is the most common thyroid dysfunction in women. So hypothyroidism is essentially low functioning thyroid, and it can onset at any time. So for me, when I was diagnosed, I was 19 years old. And I was in college at the time and I was extremely fatigued. I mean, I was having to go to bed at 6 p.m. Um, every night. My roommate, you know, she was a freshman as well and she wanted to like be social and, you know, do the normal college things. And I was probably just such a bum roommate because I was exhausted. Um, I kind of suspect that a camping trip is actually what kind of triggered my hypothyroidism. It is something that runs in my family. So it's something that I did expect to get at some point, but 19 was pretty young to be diagnosed with it. At the time I was dealing with my eating disorder. So I was going to the doctors pretty much weekly and getting blood work done. So before I went on this camping trip, my thyroid lab results were normal and then when I went on this camping trip, we used iodine tablets to, um, to basically clean the water and make it um, accessible for drinking. And this is a nine-day backpacking trip. So we used iodine tablets for you know a considerable amount of time. And then when I got back and I started doing my thyroid labs again with my doctor, my thyroid came back as off. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about iodine and thyroid health, but... Um, it can trigger hypothyroidism in some, and I think that that, for me, is what kind of um, got the ball rolling a little bit earlier on. I think that, you know, I'm 30 now. I think by now I probably would have been diagnosed with it regardless, but 19 was very young. Um, and then at that time, I was started on medication, and within six to eight weeks, I was feeling like myself again. So it was nice to 
get answers as to why I was so tired. Now, with hypothyroidism, there are a few causes, but the most common cause is a condition called Hashimoto's. So this is an autoimmune condition where our immune system essentially attacks the thyroid. It creates antibodies that prevent the thyroid from making the hormones that it needs to and can also increase inflammation. So Hashimoto's, because it is an autoimmune condition, often runs in families. Um, So if you have a mom or a grandmother or an aunt who has Hashimoto's, definitely worth getting tested yourself. And we'll talk about what testing will look like. So because the thyroid makes hormones that help to regulate metabolism and energy production, when our thyroid isn't functioning well, essentially our whole body slows down. So we see things like low energy, so daytime fatigue. We might see constipation because our bowels are not as active. Our digestive tract is not able to kind of clear any stool as efficiently. We may also be really sensitive to cold. So this was something that I also noticed when I was diagnosed. I would be freezing and have to have, you know, like four or five blankets on my bed when my roommate would just have one. So if you're that kind of person that is always adding on layers and just can never seem to get warm, definitely consider having your thyroid checked. We can also see irregular periods. So we'll often see periods more than 35 days apart. When I was diagnosed, I was not having my period, but I was also struggling with my eating disorder. So it's really hard to say what was causing what. Hair loss, of course, like I mentioned, is a symptom of low thyroid function. And then dry skin, which is, if you're listening to these symptoms so far, you may be saying, well, a lot of these sound like PCOS. And you're right. Low thyroid function does look very similar to PCOS. And there are a few differing characteristics. And one of them being with low thyroid function, we typically see dry skin. And with PCOS, we typically see oily skin or acne due to the high testosterone. Now, this isn't a hard and fast rule. I've worked with patients who have thyroid dysfunction who didn't have dry skin. I've worked with women with PCOS who did have dry skin. Um, But just kind of generally, that's typically what we tend to see. Also, with low thyroid function, we may see thinning of the eyebrows, especially the outer part of the eyebrow. We may see weight gain because metabolism slows down, depression, and then joint pain is often seen with high antibodies because of the inflammation. So just some important signs to look for, especially if you have PCOS. It's important to not assume that all your symptoms are PCOS if you haven't had your thyroid checked. Women with PCOS are more likely to have Hashimoto's antibodies than women without PCOS. So it's absolutely possible to have both hypothyroidism and PCOS, and how you address both are going to be a little bit different. So it's important to know if you're dealing with one or the other or both. Also with low thyroid function, we can see infertility. So because of irregular periods, it can make it difficult to get pregnant Women with thyroid antibodies also have a higher risk of miscarriage, so really important to be testing those if you struggle with recurrent miscarriages. And then also really important to be checking your thyroid function during pregnancy. So because pregnancy is a stressor on the body, you know, it's this big life event, this big physical change, it can trigger hypothyroidism either during pregnancy or after pregnancy. 
And it's actually been found that women with hypothyroidism, unmanaged hypothyroidism when they are pregnant, have a higher chance of having a child with Down syndrome than women who are not hypothyroid. So really important that if you're pregnant, you've had your thyroid checked at least once. Um, usually I recommend around like that six to eight week mark. Um, and then if there's any suspicion that you are borderline hypothyroid, checking every six to eight weeks after that. Now, if you are diagnosed with hypothyroidism during your pregnancy, it's a really easy fix and it can be um, fixed really quickly with medication, which we will talk about. So it's not something necessarily to panic about, but it is something to address as soon as you can. Now, I want to talk a little bit about thyroid hormones because to understand all the different hormones that are at play when it comes to our thyroid health will help you develop a better understanding of how to test your thyroid and what you should be looking for. So there's a hormone called thyroid stimulating hormone, which is abbreviated TSH. And this is a hormone that's actually made in our brain and it signals our thyroid how much hormones to make. So essentially TSH is kind of like the communicator, the messenger. It says, okay, you know, I can sense from the body that hormones are low, or I can sense from the body that hormones are high, and it will kind of regulate the thyroid to know how much to produce. From there, the thyroid makes a hormone called T4, which is an inactive hormone, meaning it doesn't have any activity in the body. T4 then has to be converted into T3, which is essentially just when an iodine molecule is removed. And then this becomes the active thyroid hormone. So when we have a lot of T3 in our body, it will signal to the brain, hey, the thyroid is doing its job. We've got plenty of T3. You can decrease TSH. And that way there's not as much TSH being sent to the thyroid to stimulate thyroid production. So it's kind of this like negative feedback type loop. On the other end, if T3 is low, so maybe the thyroid isn't making enough T4 or for whatever reason we're not converting T4 to T3 efficiently, then the brain will sense that and it will say, okay, T3 is low. We have to increase TSH almost as a way of like, I like, I picture TSH as like yelling at the thyroid saying, Hey, wake up, let's get going, make more hormones. So with that being said, a higher TSH means that you have a lower functioning thyroid, which can be confusing for some people, which is totally common and normal. Um, you know, because typically we think of, oh, more is better. So more TSH must mean that my thyroid is, you know, making a lot of hormones, but it's actually the opposite. A higher TSH means that your brain is having to yell at your thyroid to make more hormones. Now, typically with conventional medicine, when they are assessing thyroid function, they are only looking at TSH. Occasionally, if TSH comes back abnormal, then they'll look at T4, but typically it's just TSH. Now, as I explained with the thyroid hormones, you now know that TSH is not the only indicator of thyroid health, and there are many steps along the way that could potentially be backed up that would cause us to not have enough T3 and use it properly. With TSH, this is typically a test that your gynecologist or your primary care doctor will order every year, should be ordering every year, especially for women, but I would not assume that they're doing it. I would definitely ask your doctor to see your results and make sure that it's being done, especially if you 
plan to get pregnant in the future or if you are trying to conceive now. With TSH, the reference range, so what's considered normal, is pretty broad. So depending on the lab, it's roughly between 0.5 to 4.5. So essentially, if your TSH was towards 4.5, it would mean you have a lower functioning thyroid. If you have TSH really low towards like 0.3, 0.4, it means you might have an overactive thyroid. This range is pretty broad. And when it comes to women really feeling their best and not having symptoms and having their fertility best supported, TSH between one and two is really ideal. Some women do feel fine with a TSH between two and 2.5 and have no problem getting pregnant. But if you are struggling to get pregnant and you have your TSH checked and it comes back as 3.0, then I would definitely work with your doctor to bring it down into that one to two range. Now, with a full thyroid panel, it's going to be looking at all the thyroid hormones. So it's going to be looking at TSH. It will also look at T4 and T3. And then it will also look at something called reverse T3. So this is when T3, the active hormone, has become inactive. And we see this most often related to high cortisol, high stress. It might be related to blood sugar imbalance or inflammation. So really important to know, you know, are you making enough T4? Is that being converted well into T3? But then also, is that staying in that T3 form or is it being converted back into that reverse T3? So that's something that your thyroid panel will look at as well. And then with Hashimoto's, we want to be looking at antibodies. So I recommend any women who have been diagnosed with hypothyroidism, if you do not know if you have Hashimoto's and you don't know your antibody status, I would definitely ask your doctor to test you just so that you know what the driving cause of your hypothyroidism is. So two antibodies that would be looked at are called TPO, anti-TPO antibodies, which essentially stands for anti-thyroid peroxidase antibodies. And TPO antibodies are most helpful for assessing thyroid inflammation. Now, it is possible to have high antibodies and have Hashimoto's, but not have it impact your thyroid. So that, that in that case, you would want to work on reducing antibody levels. That way they don't cause thyroid damage. Other antibodies that are often looked at are antithyroglobulin antibodies. So these are anti-TG antibodies. These are not as great of an indicator of thyroid inflammation, but are an indicator of Hashimoto's. So good to look at both. TPO antibodies, definitely more helpful. Now, one thing important to note when you are getting your thyroid test done, and this will be a blood test, it's important to stop taking any supplement with biotin for two days before you do your test because biotin can cause false results for T4 and T3. So basically the results will be potentially inaccurate. So biotin is commonly found in multivitamins, in prenatals, in hair and nail supplements. So check in with your doctor before you discontinue any supplement that they have put you on, but definitely a conversation to have with your doctor um, and just get the green light for discontinuing that two days before your test. That way you get truly accurate results. All right. And then I want to spend the rest of this episode diving into how you can support thyroid health. There is a lot to be said about this. And I think it's important to remember that 
you don't have to do all of the things. So I'm going to be providing some information on foods to eat or foods to limit, on supplements to take, other things to consider. And this is really just education for you, information to take to your doctor and have a conversation and discuss, you know, maybe which options are better for you based on your health history and your symptoms. So starting with diet, especially with Hashimoto's, reducing gluten can be really helpful. Now, this is because the gluten protein looks very similar to the thyroid protein. So if we have Hashimoto's and our immune system, for whatever reason, is programmed to see our thyroid and look at it as an invader and create this inflammatory immune response type attack on our thyroid, then when we eat gluten, this immune response will be heightened, meaning we will make more antibodies, there will be more inflammation and more attack on our thyroid. Now, I have Hashimoto's. I try to limit gluten. I would say I'm 90% gluten-free. When I eat at home, gluten-free. When I go out to restaurants, if they have any options that are gluten-free, which is 99% of the time, I choose that. But if I'm you know, going to a friend's house for dinner and they cook something with gluten or I'm at like a family party or an event or something like that where it'll be a little bit more difficult to avoid gluten, then I have it. I don't worry about it so much. And I find this kind of 90-10 balance I do fine with. I don't find that I, you know, have any symptoms come up. I don't feel like I have a depressed mood or constipation or low energy when I eat gluten here and there. Um, And that's kind of just listening to my body and knowing, okay, I can tolerate a little bit of gluten. Now I have been, you know, on vacation before where I kind of said, whatever, I'm going to eat gluten whenever I want. Um, And then I don't feel so great. So it's kind of a good reminder that being mostly gluten-free really is helpful for me. And it is one of the most helpful things I do see with my patients with Hashimoto's, um, especially if you have things like Uh, brain fog or joint pain, kind of these general inflammation signs. So fortunately, there are tons of gluten-free products out there now. Um, Some of them taste like cardboard. Some of them are very good. Um, So it's just really trial and error finding the ones that you like and the ones that are made with whole foods. So things like nuts and seeds and oats um, and trying to keep it as clean as you can. Also eating foods that are high in omega-3 fatty acids, which help to reduce inflammation in the body. So think healthy fats with this one. So fatty fish like trout and salmon, nuts and seeds, avocado and olives are all great options. Sometimes depending on how inflamed a patient is, I'll have them take a fish oil supplement Um, Fish oil is one of those supplements that can be contaminated with heavy metals, so it's important that you're getting a fish oil supplement from a good source. There are some supplements where it's almost going to do more damage for you to take it if it's not high quality than if you were to just not take it at all. Fish oil is one of those where I would rather have you almost not take a fish oil um, unless you know that's going to be really high quality. Now, if you are familiar with thyroid dysfunction at all, you may have heard the term goitrogens. And goitrogens are naturally occurring substances found in certain foods, in particular brassicas, so things like broccoli, cauliflower, kale, Brussels sprouts, and even soy. 
So these goitrogens can interfere with our thyroid's ability to produce hormones. Now, of course, broccoli and kale are going to be healthy parts of our diet, and we don't want to have to avoid these foods entirely. So cooking these foods can help destroy goitrogen so they don't negatively impact our thyroid. So, you know, of course, you're probably not eating Brussels sprouts by the handful raw, but if you are somebody who has a, say, like a kale salad or likes to add kale to their smoothie, maybe substituting that out with something like spinach that is not going to um, be high in goitrogens in the same way. So just like steaming, sauteing, blanching your veggies that way. The last piece I'll share about diet, and I talk about this a lot, I feel like, on Instagram, um, are Brazil nuts. So Brazil nuts contain selenium, which is a mineral that is helpful for reducing thyroid antibodies and helpful for converting T4 into that active T3 hormone. Now you can take selenium in a supplement, but I figure, you know, why take more supplements if I don't have to? So instead I eat two Brazil nuts a day and that provides me about 200 micrograms of selenium, which is a pretty good dose for supporting the thyroid. In some women who are struggling to get pregnant, or maybe we have tested their selenium and we know it's low, we might increase that to 600 to 800 micrograms, maybe having a few more Brazil nuts, um, or considering a supplement if somebody is allergic to nuts. All right, so moving on to supplements. So one that I'm going to mention, you may already be on if you have PCOS, and that is myo-inositol. So myo-inositol is a form of inositol, was essentially a B vitamin-like substance, and myo-inositol is the main ingredient in ovocetol. And if you have PCOS and you've either worked with me or another provider who specializes in PCOS, or maybe you've just done some Google searching, you may have come across ovocetol and use it to help regulate your cycles. And if that's the case, then you're already taking myo-inositol. Myonositol helps to reduce TSH. So remember, the lower the TSH, the better functioning your thyroid, and helps to reduce antibodies. And research has actually shown better outcomes when myonositol is taken with selenium. So if you're already taking ovocetol, add in some Brazil nuts and see how that can potentially support your thyroid health. Also really important for thyroid dysfunction, hypothyroidism in particular, is making sure that you have adequate vitamin D. So vitamin D is going to help to make T3, that active hormone, and help reduce antibodies, as well as regulate the immune response that we are having to the thyroid. So really important that you test your vitamin D first before you start supplementing. Or if you have been supplementing, it probably would be still worth testing to make sure you're taking the appropriate dose. So if you go to, say, a CVS and you get a vitamin D supplement there, the standard dose that you're going to be taking is 2,000 IUs. And this is enough to maintain your vitamin D levels, but it's not enough to raise your vitamin D. So if you're really deficient, 2,000 IUs is not going to do much for you. With vitamin D, I really like to see levels around 65. I would say on average, when I test my patients who are not supplementing, their vitamin D comes back between 25 to 30 is the average. So making sure you're taking the right dose for you and also not just taking a crazy high dose just because you assume your vitamin D is low because vitamin D 
is a fat soluble vitamin, meaning it is stored in our fat. We don't urinate it out like we do with B vitamins. So we can overdo it. So it's really important if you're supplementing to be testing your levels and knowing exactly what dose is right for you. Another supplement worth mentioning is glutathione, which is a potent antioxidant. So it helps to protect against free radical damage. And it's found often to be low in women with Hashimoto's. So for some women, supplementing with glutathione, even short term, can help support those antibody levels. Another supplement I love for Hashimoto's and hypothyroidism is ashwagandha. So this is an adaptogenic herb. And by adaptogenic, I mean it helps the body adapt to stress. It also helps to increase T3 and T4 and helps to regulate cortisol, our stress hormone, which leads to less inflammation. So I really love this herb for women who are hypothyroid, who are really stressed or, you know, maybe from work stress or life stress. This is usually my go-to kind of first line choice for a supplement that's going to support both their stress response and their thyroid. Now, also really important to look at your iron levels because iron helps to transport T3 into cells to be used. So maybe if we have enough T3, but our cells aren't able to use it, it's not really going to do us much good. So iron can be a really hard mineral to absorb. If you have any sort of digestive issues, if you follow a vegan or vegetarian diet, if you have really heavy periods and you lose a lot of blood each month, you may be low in iron due to that. So really important that you're testing your iron and your ferritin levels. Ferritin is our body's storage form of iron. So making sure you're looking at both. Now with ferritin, typically that's kind of what I look to first to look for iron deficiency because as our iron starts to get low, it's going to start to pull from the ferritin store. So that's going to become depleted first. Now, women with hypothyroidism, if they are not trying to get pregnant, um, then a ferritin around 50 to 80, I'm okay with. But if we're trying to get pregnant, I really prefer a ferritin more around 90 to 100. Definitely if ferritin is under 50, you should be working with a doctor to supplement your iron and then testing it to making sure you're absorbing it properly. Sometimes you have to take different forms of iron and multiple forms of supplements in order to get your levels up. Also with that, considering iron rich foods, so things like red meat and leafy greens, um, and then pairing those with vitamin C rich foods. So things like peppers and citrus, sweet potatoes, vitamin C is going to help your body absorb iron better, especially when the iron is coming from a plant source. Now, the last thing I want to touch on as far as supplements go, and I mentioned this at the beginning, is iodine. So iodine is a mineral, and low levels of iodine have been associated with hypothyroidism. And that's because we do need iodine to make thyroid hormones. However, high levels of iodine have also been associated with hypothyroidism. So essentially, we have this kind of Goldilocks position with iodine where we don't want too much, we don't want too little, we want to be right in the middle. And that's why I personally 
do not recommend supplementing with iodine because it is such a fine line of too much, too little, but rather I prefer my patients to get their iodine through foods. So things like seaweed, animal products, so eggs, beef, chicken, fish, and then even some fortified cereals. Now, some other things to note with hypothyroidism is it's important to rule out gut infections. Now, especially something like H. pylori, which is a bacteria that can also cause ulcers in the stomach, certain gut infections can bind to TSH and increase antibodies. Now, typically with my Hashimoto's patients, we won't go straight to stool testing. We'll usually do some foundational work first and see if we can get their thyroid under control that way because it's not always a guarantee that a gut infection is causing Hashimoto's. Um, so typically after you know two to three months of care, if their thyroid isn't significantly improving and their symptoms aren't getting better, then we'll go to stool testing next. Um, I just prefer not to you know, go down all these rabbit holes of testing because you could potentially, you know, one, it's a lot of money, and two, you might be looking for something that doesn't really overall impact the patient's health that much. So kind of ruling out you know, foundational work first, looking at the nutrients to support the thyroid, and then next step, looking at potential gut infections. Also really helpful to exercise daily um, in a way that you enjoy. So exercise helps to increase cell sensitivity to thyroid hormones, but also really important that we're exercising in a way that doesn't further increase inflammation. So I prefer low impact movements like Pilates, yoga, walking, and strength training. Then the last piece I'm going to mention as far as managing thyroid health is just becoming aware of potential toxins that you may be exposed to often in your daily life. Now, this can include things that are in your personal care products. It could include maybe putting hot food into plastic Tupperware containers before it has cooled down or maybe microwaving your food in plastics. It can include your water supply. Um, so I'll be doing an episode purely on environmental toxins, but it's something to just start to brainstorm and kind of evaluate. Um, I believe I mentioned this on the last episode, but if you're wanting to kind of get started with choosing cleaner products, I love the Environmental Working Group's Healthy Living app. So it's called Healthy Living. You can download it and essentially it helps the consumer just become more aware of what is in their products and how the ingredients impact their health. So it allows you to scan the barcode on your product. So say like a shampoo or a household cleaner, and then it will give you a rating from one to 10, 10 being the most toxic. And I typically recommend trying to stick with products that rank four or less. So if you're wanting to kind of start to clean up your household environment, you know, small changes over a long period of time are going to end up making huge changes in a year or five years or 10 years. So don't feel like you have to do everything at once, but you know, maybe next time you go to the store to get a new deodorant, scan the code and see where it, where the one that you are currently using ranks. And then maybe if it ranks a little bit higher on the toxicity scale, maybe choosing something that's a little bit cleaner. Now, just to finish up, I want to touch on prescription medications for hypothyroidism. Because I think that a lot of times we can get 
and I, when I say we, I mean, you know, people in the naturopathic community, people who prefer naturopathic medicine, we can get really um, set on, you know, no medications ever at all. And I do think, especially when it comes to hypothyroidism, that medications can be really helpful, especially when we are needing to, you know, support the thyroid really quickly. So maybe a woman has been struggling to get pregnant for a year and she's just now learning that her thyroid is not functioning very well and she just really wants to have a baby, you know, within the next few months. That would be an excellent example of when thyroid medication is absolutely needed so that we can get those thyroid hormones up and so that she's able to get pregnant. Also, if a woman becomes hypothyroid during pregnancy, we absolutely want to correct for that as soon as possible to help support the growth of the baby. So the most common medication that's prescribed is called Synthroid, also called levothyroxine. And this is essentially man-made T4. Now, I typically prefer this medication because it is only T4, meaning the body will have to do the work to convert it into T3. And I really prefer to allow the body to do as much as possible um, rather than kind of overriding the body's entire thyroid hormone cascade system. Cytomel, which is also called leothyronine, is man-made T3. So this is just purely giving your body the active hormone. No conversion is happening. Some patients might be on both Synthroid and Cytomel, especially if they are not able to convert T4 into T3 very well. So those are the more um, pharmaceutical options. Now, there are more natural prescription medications as well. So these can include things like Armor or Nature Throid, and these are going to be pig desiccated thyroid. So essentially, it's pig thyroid gland, and it's a combination of both T4 and T3. Now, there's not necessarily one that's better than the other as far as Synthroid versus Armor, Different people do better on others. I know I have some patients who really didn't feel well on Synthroid, but did great on Armor. I myself was on Armor and wasn't well managed for a long time, but did better on Synthroid. Um, so it's really just finding what is best for you and trying to be open-minded and not, you know, the most important thing is that you feel your best with minimal side effects. So for some people that might mean Synthroid, it might mean Armor, um, but also important to work with a doctor that's willing to explore that with you. If you have a doctor that's really set on one or the other and you know, you're know you not feeling great on what you're currently taking, then maybe look for a doctor that's willing to try out other medications with you and see what could potentially be a better fit. So that is pretty much all I have today. Um, you know, I just want to reiterate the importance of knowing that the symptoms that come along with low thyroid function can look like many other things, right? Especially PCOS. It can also look like common symptoms that we experience during postpartum, right? So fatigue, obviously from having a new baby, not getting much sleep, hair loss from those hormonal changes we see during the postpartum period weight gain, you know, just had a baby, potentially depression if you're dealing with postpartum depression. So it's important that you're checking your thyroid health and not just assuming, oh, these symptoms are because of my PCOS only, or these symptoms are because I'm postpartum and, 
I just have to wait this out. I would, you know, definitely check your thyroid at least once a year. If you aren't sure what your thyroid status is, I strongly encourage you to call your doctor and find out when the last time your thyroid was checked and ask for those labs. And again, that TSH between one to two is really ideal. So if you're getting a TSH that's three and you're having some of these symptoms, then it may be worth considering, okay, how can I support my thyroid health? You know, that may not mean starting a medication because your TSH isn't that high, but some of the more natural support um, can get you to a place where you're really feeling much better. So I hope this was helpful. Next week, I will be diving deeper into hair loss, but I want to touch on this first because thyroid dysfunction is such a common cause of hair loss. I know I was like losing hair by the handful. I've had a very long hair journey um, through hormonal issues and hair loss through my eating disorder and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to talk about that next week, but if you have any questions on anything I spoke about today, feel free to DM me at Dr. Danielle period ND on TikTok and Instagram. Um, I will also leave a link in the show notes. If you're interested in working together, I do work with patients one-on-one virtually. Um, and I offer a discovery call. So essentially a 15 minute phone call where we can just kind of chat about your health goals, answer any questions you might have about working together and just make sure that we are a good fit for each other. Um, Otherwise, I look forward to speaking with you next week. If you have anyone, a loved one, a friend, a family member who you think could benefit from listening to this podcast, please send it to them and please click follow so that you don't miss any episodes in the future. Um, You know, all this information I think is so valuable and you never know what is going to hit home for you or potentially, you know, maybe you're out at lunch or on a coffee date with a friend and they mention, oh, I've been super cold lately and I'm exhausted and my hair is falling out. And you can say, hey, listen to this podcast and you should get your thyroid checked. You can be your friend's hero. You never know. All right. I will see you guys next week. I hope you guys have a great day.